Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And here we go on a Tuesday. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We hope it's a good day for you. We'll be talking about the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, as we'll talk with Michael Langmeyer, Purdue economist, see what farmers are thinking now about the ag economy. That's coming up in a bit. We'll talk about the uh, the pork market, the pork industry with Kearns and Associates economist Steve Meyer. And we'll also get some uh, new information on the battle with soybean cyst nematodes, some things to keep in mind for soybean growers. We'll talk with Iowa State nematologist Greg Tilka a little bit later in the program. But we're going to start things off today with Todd Neely from DTN. Todd, thank you for joining us. Lots going on. Good morning. Yeah, there's never a dull moment in this in this business. It's been quite a, <laughs> quite a ride. Yeah, it sure has. Uh, well, let's take a look at some of the issues. Uh, maybe we haven't talked too much about, so I want to get to those. Um, we are expecting sometime this month a dicamba decision from EPA. Yeah, you know, uh, things have really been thrown into a tizzy with all the recent court action on dicamba. Um, you know, we're running up the time of the year when farmers are planning for their, their seed purchases and those sorts of things for the upcoming year. And uh, we're still kind of hanging in the balance to find out if dicamba is even going to be used at this point. Uh, the agency's in the process of reviewing a couple new products um, related to to this whole situation. And uh, I guess we just kind of wait and see. Uh, there's a number of a uh, number of situa- number of issues out there for farmers. I mean, we have to we have to get these weeds under control. And, and I think. Uh, you know, the thing about the dicamba situation is that we've seen a lot of crop damages over the past several years and a lot of a lot of controversy. And so uh, not really sure where this is going to go at the moment, but it's definitely uh, running up against crunch time here for EPA. Yeah, a lot of farmers will be watching that closely. Meanwhile, there was a lawsuit that alleged cattle price fixing, and that case was dismissed. Tell us about it. Yeah, uh, you know, there were a number of cases brought against uh, some of the larger meat packers, Tyson Foods, uh, JBS, and, and a number of others, uh, alleging that they had worked together to actually bring down the cattle prices uh, back in 2015 and, and beyond. Um, those cases were combined into one lawsuit in the district uh, court in Minnesota. Uh, last week, at, uh, at the end of the week or near the end of the week, um, the judge in that case had basically thrown out that lawsuit saying that, uh, well, for a number of reasons, one of those was which uh, there were two confidential sources or anonymous sources or witnesses who came forward. Um, and the court ruled that uh, the, the plaintiffs in the case had not brought the proper sufficient information as to what those witnesses had to say. Um, and so uh, it, seems at the moment that this this case is going to be dead now whether there are going to be other cases coming I, I don't know but it seems like this is a this is a type of a lawsuit that's been brought before it never really goes anywhere and uh, this was probably the biggest of those lawsuits meanwhile what's going on in the ethanol market these days well you know <laughs> we've seen we as you know ethanol had a big struggle this year we've had ethanol prices uh, during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, just fall to nothing. 
Um, and then we've seen a slight recovery. Well, we're kind of going back the other direction right now. Uh, production is down a little bit, which isn't a bad thing considering how much ethanol there was in the market. You know, we've seen stocks of ethanol fall to some of their lowest levels since 2016. Uh, but at the same time, we've seen corn prices on the rise. And so, uh, you know, the, num- the margins that these plants are making, which they're already in distress, uh, those margins are falling as we speak. And so uh, any talk about a future aid package related to COVID, probably uh, it probably is ra- raising some more interest in, in bringing some, uh, some relief to ethanol. You know, there's a provision in the House bill that was passed that would do just that. And so we kind of wait to see where that ends up. And we're still waiting to see if they can come to some agreement on a COVID aid package, another one. Yeah, you know, uh, we've seen both chambers of the, you know, the House and, and the Senate are, are off right at this moment, but uh, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff going on. Uh, there's, I think there's a hope, there's a push to try to get an aid package put out before before the election. Now, whether that happens or not, is, is looking, it's looking pretty tough at the moment. Um, I think Senator uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, had, had dismissed uh, the Senate until about the 19th of October because of uh, the COVID situation among Senate members and that sort of thing. And so uh, we're still going to wait and see, but there is some, some behind-the-scenes things going on. There's also, we'll go back to ag in the courtroom, uh, challenges to... Uh, California's uh, proposition concerning uh, uh, production practices, and I think Farm Bureau and pork producers are working together on that court case. Yeah, you know, Mike, it's it's interesting because a lot of a lot of the cases that we see in agriculture related related to agriculture, it seems many of those originate in California. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. It's uh, I I think a lot of these groups have learned over the years that. Uh, you know, without banding together, it's it's really difficult uh, to get anywhere. We've seen that in a number of situations. You know, the Lotus cases that were filed back in 2015, uh, the same situation. A lot of ad groups came together, and uh, I think that's really the way things are going to get done because we're going to continue to see lawsuits, uh, you know, ongoing when it relates anything to agriculture. And I think, uh, you know, we'll see where they all go, but I, I, I do think that that case in California is fairly important. Yes, because what they're saying is you can't sell into California unless you abide by the same production right. practices they ma- they are mandating with their proposition. So that then impacts yeah. producers all across the country. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've seen it with ethanol, too. You know, talk about uh, going away from fossil fuels in the state. You know, well, ethanol producers have been fighting for years to get into that market because of the low-carbon fuel standard they have there. And so, yeah, it's... Uh, California is always an interesting place, and I, and I think that, you know, it's a huge market, you know, whether it be ethanol or ag products, we have to we'll have to see how it all goes, but I think, uh, you know, one way or the other, um, agriculture really does need that market. Well, Todd, we're only, what, a, just a couple weeks or so away from the start of the Big Ten football season. That we're looking forward uh, to, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, it's... Uh, just anything to get a little relief from 2020. It's been a it's been a heck of a year. It really has. All right, good to talk with you, Todd, and we'll check in again with you next week. All right. All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. Take care, DTN reporter Todd Neely. Yeah, a lot going on and some big decisions coming up, and we'll see what happens. Uh, are they going to get a COVID aid package? Another one worked out or not? Um, 
Wow. And what will be in it for agriculture? How will it be handled? How will it be dispersed? Speaking of dispersing funds for agriculture, tomorrow we'll get another update on CFAP 1 and But coming up next, we're going to have the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. What are farmers saying about some key questions in agriculture? Michael Langmeyer, Purdue Ag Economist, joins us next with the uh, latest numbers. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Do you feel that the Next Generation Fuels Act could have even more of a profound impact on the biofuels industry than the RFS? I do, and it's because it clears all of the market barriers that are out there. The reed vapor pressure stumbling block that we've had in the past. If passed, that barrier goes away. Credits to get the automakers to produce more flexible fuel vehicles restored. Retail compatibility with blends up to E30 taken care of. Um, A high-octane market, something we've always tried to pursue, and we know that ethanol contains um, really affordable octane. It's just that one piece, making sure that they get the low carbon, really accounting for how uh, ethanol plants um, are low carbon on a facility-by-facility basis. That little tweak is made to the bill, and if enacted, it would have a greater positive impact on the rural economy than the RFS. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. There's a reason more than a billion feet of ADS farm tile lies beneath America's heartland. It's simple. We build trust. Since 1966, farmers and their families have trusted ADS products to improve yields and create longer growing seasons. From lift stations to water control structures, ADS Agriculture has everything you need for total ag water management solutions. For everyone out there feeding the world, we wish you all a safe and happy harvest. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to separate. First, use different cutting boards for meat, poultry, seafood, and veggies. Raw meat should never touch food that won't be cooked. Then, always keep raw meat, poultry, seafood, and their juices away from other foods in the shopping cart. And store raw meat, poultry, and seafood in a container or on a plate in the fridge so juices won't drip on other foods. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. 
Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, we have the latest numbers in the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Joining us now is Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langmeyer. Michael, thank you for joining us. Uh, let's get those numbers out there. Looks like another increase, right? That's moving up again. Yeah, glad to be with you. Yes, the index increased to 156 from 144 in August, and this is a, a large increase, uh, you know, compared to April and May. Back in April and May, we're right around an index of 100. And so the index has increased dramatically uh, since its, since its uh, uh, lows in, in April and May. And if you look at the two subcomponents, uh, the index of current conditions increased more than the index of future expectations. And I think that was due to two different things. Uh, one is the, the increase in, in prices, particularly corn and soybeans, uh, from late July, early August uh, into, into uh, September. Uh, this survey took place uh, the third week in September, and so we'd already seen quite a bit of strength in, in corn and soybean prices compared uh, to, you know, to that late July, early August period. But also, uh, this survey took place right after, uh, you know, the week after uh, the announcement of the second round of the, uh, of the CPAP payments. And so I think both of those things were important uh, to, to, uh, to the increase. When you think about the in, increase in index of current conditions and the in, in, increase in the Ag Economy Barometer Index. Yeah, no doubt. Two big factors there. Now, based on that uh, kind of renewed optimism or increased optimism, uh, what are farmers saying about uh, their willingness maybe to make large purchases? Yes, that certainly changed, very consistent with the index of current conditions. The, the, the Farm Capital Investment Index uh, increased to 73. That's even higher than what it was in January and February. Now, it's still below 100. Uh, 100 if it's above 100, that means that, that farmers think that it's a good time rather than a bad time uh, to invest in machinery. So there's still some pessimism out there uh, in terms of this being a good time uh, you know, to, to uh, invest in machinery, but it's certainly less pessimistic than what we saw earlier this year. Another thing that was impacted, we've been asking a question the last two or three months related to cash rents in 2021, and back when prices were a little bit lower, uh, there, there seemed like there was a lot more sediment that we were going to see lower cash rents uh, for 2021. Uh, in, the latest, in the latest survey in September here, uh, there's still 11% that think cash rents are going to be lower in 2021, but that's decreased from about uh, you know, 15 to 20% uh, in, in, uh, in, in July and August. All right. What about on trade and exports? We've had, of course, buying from China recently. Did that influence uh, farmers' attitudes about trade? Yes, yes, it did. Probably not as much as as it did in August. I mean, a large part of the of the increase in August from July was trade related. I think less of the increase this time around was trade related. And and we did ask a question uh, this month that we haven't been asking. Uh, for a while at least, and, and the question was essentially asking, uh, will China uh, fulfill phase one agreement? agreement? And about 50% uh, thought it was unlikely uh, that that agreement would be fulfilled, and about 50% thought it was likely. And so, and so the trade was more neutral this month, um, you know, uh, uh, compared to previous months. But it's still, still, you know, having said that, there's still approximately 60% think, think agriculture exports are going to increase in the next five years. 
You've been asking about uh, planting cover crops. What did you learn there? Yeah, we've been asking the last couple of months about uh, cover crops, and, and the first thing we did is we, we, we focused on corn and soybean producers, and so, uh, just so we didn't have all of the crops involved uh, were related to cover crops. And, and when we asked corn and soybean, those that produce corn and soybean producers, which was about 60% uh, of the survey, uh, whether they use uh, cover crops either in 2020 or previous years, about 40% uh, indicated that they, they, they uh, uh, plan on using cover crops this year. Um, uh, quite a few of those, uh, two-thirds of that 40%, uh, have been using cover crops for longer than four years, and so that was really interesting. Uh, when it came down to the percentage of land uh, that they were using cover crops on, uh, the average for those that are using cover crops was, was, was uh, 45%, approximately 45%. But having said that, uh, about half of the people uh, planted cover crops on a third or less of their acreage. And so really there was two, two distinct groups of cover crop users in the survey. One is those that are, seem like they're, they're, they're relatively recent to using cover crops, and they're using cover crops on a relatively small part of their acreage. There's also another group, which is not as big, that are using cover crops extensively, and we even had some people that were using cover crops on 100% of their acreage. And so a pretty large use of cover crops, but a lot of difference in terms of the acreage uh, in which cover crops are, are utilized. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I know when I talk with farmers, I, I, get, I hear strong opinions both ways on cover crops. I, I do too, and so it wasn't really, uh, really all that surprising. But I was a little surprised at at the forty percent number. Uh, you know, forty percent of the corn and soybean producers uh, were using cover crops. I didn't think it'd be quite that high. Mm-hmm. So, uh, did you add any other new questions this past month? We did ask a question. Uh, we've been asking the last couple of months, as you know, about virtual field days, and and we asked a question about uh, have you attended or you are you planning to attend a virtual field day? And that was about 20%. Uh, but we, we followed that up with a couple questions I think are important for those that are, that are hosting uh, uh, virtual field days, which is a lot of people uh, to think about. And we asked, what do you like and dislike about virtual field days? And in terms of like, uh, this is important. They like the flexibility, uh, flexible timing. Uh, I know when I watch a webinar, that's that's really nice that you can watch it kind of on your own time, and and uh, and so they really like that aspect of it. What they dislike, and this is no surprise, they dislike the fact that there's a lack of interaction with meeting attendees, and so that's just something it's hard to overcome with a virtual field day. One of my thoughts on that, if if someone's hosting a virtual field day, try to have a panel. Uh, because that's a little bit more of a question-and-answer approach rather than just someone talking for 30 minutes or 45 minutes. And so uh, people need to do whatever they can uh, to try to engage the audience, even if that means sending in questions. Uh, It's just so important to get some interaction. It's really going to be interesting to see post-COVID, whenever we get to that, how many, uh, you know, is it a pent-up demand to get back to a meeting and, and see other people, or do we see more of a move to these virtual type events or maybe some kind of a hybrid, a combination of the two? I think it's going to be a combination because I really think it depends on the personality. There's some people really like the in-person meetings because of that interaction. Uh, there's others that, that really like the flexibility and timing. Another thing that, that's, that people like is the, is the fact you can pick topics. It's really easy to pick topics that you're interested in. That's probably easier to do with a virtual meeting, uh, pick and choose the topics than it is in person. 
Uh, and, and so there is some features of the virtual where I think some people are, are, are going to continue to, to, to want uh, to, to uh, attend virtual meetings and, and watch webinars. I tell you, I'm really anxious to see the results of next month's barometer, just the way things have been changing so much. We think back, you know, the last few months and how so many things have changed with markets and a lot of other events. Obviously, unfortunately, COVID is still with us, but so many things have changed. And I think we're seeing a lot of that reflected here in in the barometer numbers. Certainly, it's been a roller coaster, and hopefully we're on the higher end of the roller coaster rather than the lower end. Yeah, and we'll really be, you know, when we get the results next month, it will really reflect what's going on with the harvest, and that, of course, will reflect uh, also the markets and some things happening there. That'll have another big impact, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. When you look at October, November, typically, when you look at the results for those months, uh, you really see the influence of yields. If the yields are better than people thought, uh, then there's, 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 there's more optimism. If yields are disappointing, uh, then there's a little bit more pessimism. And so, yes, yeah, so that uh, certainly the October-November results will be very closely tied uh, to the actual yield that producers, producers are getting. For those not familiar with the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, tell us a little bit about it again, how you do it, how many people you talk to. It is, it is a phone survey of 400 U.S. agriculture producers. Uh, we call people in a, a third week of each month, uh, and so it's a full week, uh, and, um, and, and it, it's, it's, it's a representative of those that are full-time farms. And so that's always very important when you're looking at the results uh, of the survey is, is that individuals tend to be uh, full-time farms. Uh, as I indicated, we survey the third week of each month, and we always release the results uh, the first Tuesday of the, of the, of the, uh, um, the next month. And it's always interesting to see, kind of get a feel for what farmers are thinking and reacting to the events that are going on at that particular time. All right, Michael, thank you very much, and we will talk again next month. Thank you. Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langmeyer with the latest results, uh, again, showing um, more optimism among farmers in that Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. It climbed to 156, the highest reading in the index since the pandemic began last winter. All right. Coming up next, we're going to talk with another economist, Kearns and Associates economist Steve Meyer. Take a look at the pork industry, the pork market, what's going on with the packing plants, packing capacity, backlog of hogs, all those issues. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, you have some new economic data that uh, they should look at, and that shows the economic impact, the negative impact on the ethanol industry caused by COVID-19. Well, that's right, Mike. Uh, We did see the publication of a new study from some economists at the University of Florida and Arizona State University not typical Corn Belt, uh, you know, land-grant universities, looking at the impacts of COVID-19 on not just the ethanol sector, but also the corn industry and the oil and gas industry. And what they found through a very robust uh, economic analysis is that the ethanol industry is expected to lose somewhere around $8 billion in 2020 due to uh, the the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact that it had on transportation fuel markets. 
For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Soybean futures trending higher on this Tuesday, leading the grains into positive territory. An uptick in palm oil futures overseas could be one factor pushing U.S. soybean values higher on this Tuesday. Malaysian palm oil gaining 3.5% in value in overnight trade. 38% of soybeans harvested as of Sunday nationwide, according to USDA. That's 10 points ahead of the five-year average. Corn harvest picking up speed last week, moving ahead 10 points to reach 25% complete as of Sunday. Corn reaching maturity estimated at 87% as of Sunday. Winter wheat planting picking up speed last week, too, moving ahead 17 percentage points to reach 52% finished as of Sunday, according to USDA. Tuesday, an hour into the day, Chicago wheat December up 13 and three quarters at 598. Kansas City wheat December up 14 and a half at 538 and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat December up eight and three quarters at 544 and a quarter. Corn December contract up eight and a half at 388. March at 396 and three quarters up seven and a half. Soybean futures November up 23 cents, 1044 and a half. January 1046 and a quarter up 21 cents. Live cattle futures, December up 85 cents at 112.60 per hundredweight. Feeder cattle, November up 22 at 140.15. Lean hog futures, December contract up $1.67, 64.32. Outside markets, the Dow up 108, S&P down a point. November crude oil up $1.42. You're listening to AOA. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, throughout uh, the pandemic, we've been talking with Steve Meyer, Kearns and Associates Economist, about the situation with the pork industry, and it's been uh, uh, quite a quite a year for sure. When I get the very latest, Steve, thanks for joining us. Where are we as far as uh, how the the packing plants are running, as far as capacity is concerned? Well, we're pretty well stable, Mike. We're running right around ninety five percent of the actual capacity, maybe ninety four, ninety six or so, uh, four to five percent that uh, still are not uh, operating 
um, you know, those those shackle spaces are not available. Uh, those are kind of concentrated in North Carolina. I mean, the Tar Heel plant has had lots of trouble and continues to do so, and the Gwaltney, Virginia plant, which is, of course, right across the border, um, also having trouble. Those are labor issues, just not getting enough people to be at work. Now, they slaughtered at about 28,000 last week per day at Tar Heel, which was the best they've done. Part of that is Smithfield had put a restriction on any of their workers that were 60 years of age or over and hadn't let them come to work until last week. And so they got some workers back, and as one of the Smithfield guys told me, he said, you know, it's not just that we're missing workers there, we're missing some people that have worked for us for 20 and 30 years that are really good workers. And so uh, there was a productivity issue on that as well. But um, So maybe we can get it pushed back up. Uh, you know, we're still, you know, uh, we can't slaughter over about 488 or 489 a, a day nationally. Uh, you know, our capacity, physical capacity, is well over 510. So um, we need to get some more of that back online. Um, uh, it, it's it's still a problem. Uh, you know, the the Western United States looks to be much more current on their hog supplies, at least at the moment. Uh, but we still think the, the September hogs and pigs report means there's more hogs coming and probably more than we can get slaughtered on an ongoing basis. And North Carolina getting, is still way behind. Yeah, are we getting any new plans? Are we getting close to any new plans coming online? No, no. We got a double shift started at the Wyndham, Minnesota plant, uh, the Prime Port plant up there. That's a small plant. Their single shift capacity is 5,100. Uh, they won't kill. They won't slaughter, but maybe a couple of thousand on their second shift. So that's the only, that one and the new uh, premium Iowa pork plant at Laverne, Minnesota, which started operations back in May. So they're ramping up, and so there's you know three or four thousand head a day there in those two plants. But that's it. I mean, we've got we got a plant at Press, the Prestige plant in Iowa that could double shift, but they don't. I mean, labor's a huge issue for them. Uh, the Coldwater, Michigan plant that just started in 17 would have to do some more cooler work, and so they would probably be a year from the time they started that work before they could add a double shift. And then the Holstone Foods plant, the old Hormel plant at, uh, at Fremont, they're remodeling that plant and plan to do a double shift that it would be early 22 before that's done. And there aren't any greenfield plants available, even on the books. Nobody is planning on building a new plant. So um, we're kind of, this is all we're going to have for a while, and we need to keep that in mind when we make production decisions. We're talking with Kearns and Associates economist Steve Meyer. All right, Steve, then what is the backlog, especially as you're saying uh, it looks like a lot more hogs are going to be coming on. What's the backlog going into this? Well, the backlog, we think, was about 1.3 or $4 million by the time we got the September Hogs and Pigs report. Now, that report showed huge numbers of 180 and over and 120 to 179 hogs. And, in fact, uh, it's been roundly poo-pooed by most people in the business, and, and, and I, I think it is certainly starting to look like it was overstated. But the problem there is the location of those pigs. Um, I think the state data is clearly wrong. I don't think there was as many in Minnesota and Iowa as what they had, but we think there's more in North Carolina. In fact, we talked to a major player in North Carolina this week that 
said, look, you know, there's probably over a million hogs backed up out here and a lot of 300-pound hogs. And if you look at the weights of, produce, of packer-owned pigs, they've been going up like a rocket, and that has that, that's high, heavily influenced by Smithfield, who owns a, a, a large portion of those packer-owned pigs that get reported every day. So um, we still think there's a significant number of hogs backed up in, in North Carolina. In the West... At least for the moment, we're much more current, but we still hear about quite a few pigs out there, and now we've got fresh corn and cool weather, and uh, those weights have gone up five pounds over the last four weeks as well. And uh, so we're concerned that there, we're still going to get a, a time here in you know, late October into November that we're just going to have a kind of a big slug of pigs that need to find a home. Now, we haven't seen any of that in the cash market yet. We haven't heard of people saying, I've got 10 loads of hogs that have to move. We haven't heard that yet. I think we're going to have a time where we have some of that. But then we'll get into the under 120 categories in the report that we're down 3.5%. And that should happen sometime in November, early December. So uh, we still think the December report's a little oversold. Um, you see strength on the October as we're trying to catch up with the, the Lean Hog Index. But uh, it looks like the, the December report might be a little oversold. Um, we still think that we're going to have uh, not a huge reduction in this sow herd. And with productivity growth, I, I still think it's very likely we'll have more hogs come to town next year than we have this year. So with already that backlog and what you're talking about coming, I mean, are we talking about a major, major issue coming up again like we faced earlier this year no not to that degree i mean okay. I, I think we're going to have i think we're going to have a few hogs that get backed up but not nothing like we had in may april may and june uh, nothing like that um i think we'll probably have a few weeks where uh, there's going to be plenty of market hogs available and i i believe you'll see some pressure on the spot market okay on the on the negotiated the western corn belt negotiated uh, I think that'll push that down some, but I don't see a debacle coming at us like we had like l- last year. And the other thing, Mike, is we need to remember the demand is excellent right now. I mean, this cutout value is over ninety dollars. Um, uh, I-, I think it could stay, you know, in the upper eighties pretty easily here. Um, fall, uh, the fourth quarter of the year is the best pork demand of the year. Uh, I think I've mentioned on here. There's a there's this myth that. When we fire up the grills in the summer, pork demand gets better. Uh, the data don't support that. Uh, the fact is hog prices and meat prices are usually higher in the summer because the supply is short. Uh, and in the fall, uh, we would have higher supplies if we had shorter supplies, and that's exactly what we have this year. Normally, we produce a lot more fourth-quarter pork than what we're going to produce in 2020. And so, uh, you know, the, the market needs more pork, and so we're going to see – uh, those prices stay strong on the product side. Uh, demand export demand has softened a bit, but it's still good. Um, you know, we think that uh, retail demand has picked up most of the slack of the food service sector, and so uh, demand is the real star here uh, that's taken this uh, these extra pounds off the product uh, off the market. And and like I say, in fact, we're not producing as many extra pounds as we normally do in the fourth quarter. Well, it is pork month, and uh, when you look at that situation where we saw the restaurants shut down early on and so much more retail business, now restaurants are slowly coming back. It's kind of a mixed bag there. What are we seeing in that uh, uh, the restaurant business versus retail? 
Well, we still have the retail picking up the slack. The restaurant isn't back full by any stretch, and we still have these outbreaks in some places. Of course, we, big news, I guess New York was going to allow some restaurants to open back up uh, on, on a limited seating basis, which is kind of the general rule here. Uh, but if you're limited seating, that means you can hold, you know, half as many people as you used to be able to hold. So you can't expect that business to come back up. I think the interesting thing here, Mike, is it looks to me like there are some long-term gains for the pork industry out of this. And this, and here's why: where are you more likely to find a piece of pork for available for sale in a restaurant or at a grocery store? And the answer is clearly at a grocery store, especially at lunch and dinner, because we're not very well represented on menus. Uh, now, breakfast is a different story, but at the other, the other two day parts, uh, you got a lot better chance of buying pork at a retail at a grocery store than you do at a restaurant. And when you go to a grocery store, you get to compare the prices of pork with beef. Uh, we're clearly a winner there. And we're not usually that much more expensive than chicken. And so I think we win on a lot of cases here as we've forced people to get more in the habit of buying retail and preparing their own meals. So uh, hopefully this will have a little bit of carryover and get some more people using pork that haven't before uh, due to the exposure we have here. Now, I'd still like to have all those breakfast places open back up and all those breakfast buffets at business meetings open back up because I think that'd be a net gain for us at this point. It looks like retail's filled the gap pretty well, uh, and, and again, there could be some kind of longer-term positives out of this. Uh, it's hard to find a silver lining in this, but that might be one. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It sounds like you know you think long term. You've you've got some customers, some consumers that uh, have uh, kind of found pork maybe for the first time, and, and that's now part of their uh, part of their buying and part of their menu, their diets. Well, and we're so 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 habit driven. I mean, you know, you kind of have the same things all the time mm-hmm. until you get forced out of your comfort zone, or you or you make a conscious decision to do that, and. Uh, you know, the the pork board for years has always been trying to get pork in that mental Rolodex of what meals you have each week on the minds of consumers. That's been one of their goals is to get pork in the mix in when consumers yep. are trying to decide what they're going to serve. And uh, this might have forced the issue a bit. Steve, always good to talk with you. Thanks for the update. Thank you, Mike. Have a good day. Take you too. Take care. Steve Meyer, Kearns & Associates Economist. Up next, some uh, the latest news on the battle with soybean cyst nematodes. Stay with us on AOA. Adams on Agriculture, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay. 
especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. <clears throat> Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. And today we're talking with Jay Deberton, President and CEO of CHS, about the important role cooperatives play in solving the challenges in agriculture today. Now, October is National Co-op Month, where we celebrate the contributions of cooperatives to U.S. agriculture. Jay, let's start there. How do you see the cooperative spirit at work today? Cooperative spirit is one of the four core values we have at, uh, at, at CHS. It, it, it goes to how we conduct ourselves and how we conduct ourselves with, with integrity and with, with humility and thinking about the communities we operate in. Uh, our owners that do business with us own the company uh, in a very real way, a way that makes a difference. And specifically to the communities that we operate uh, in, you know, we are an organization that looks for ways to contribute to those to those communities so some things I'd, I'd point to uh, Mike is 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 training uh, that we've done to frontline staff and and, and leaders and communities uh, where we live and work around mental health awareness recognizing the continued stress on farmers and ranchers I'd also point to uh, contributions that CHS makes um, around uh, food shelves in rural America. Um, obviously, we give in the metropolitan areas we operate into, but, but, but the needs in rural America are, are, are large, and, and we look at that as a responsibility for us and, and, and living out our cooperative spirit. It's just something that we really look for ways to earn the business from around rural America, because that's where we operate. Thanks for joining us Around the Table, sponsored by CHS. Start a conversation about the benefits of cooperative ownership around your table by visiting cooperativeownership.com. There's a reason more than a billion feet of ADS farm tile lies beneath America's heartland. It's simple. We build trust. Since 1966, farmers and their families have trusted ADS products to improve yields and create longer growing seasons. From lift stations to water control structures, ADS Agriculture has everything you need for total ag water management solutions. For everyone out there feeding the world, we wish you all a safe and happy harvest. You only get one chance to leave your mark on the land you love. So choose the soybeans with a legacy all their own. FS High Soy, the first proprietary soybean brand 
Heisley has been a part of the land for 50 years, offering the latest in trade technologies and elite genetics. Heisley varieties continue to provide industry charting yields. FS Heisley. See your local FS member company or visit fsheisley.com. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, as you harvest soybeans this year, you already need to be thinking about a couple years from now in the battle against soybean cyst nematode. Joining us is Greg Tilka. He is an Iowa State nematologist. And, and Greg, you have some new information showing uh, uh, the conditions this year in soybean fields when we're looking at a corn-soybean rotation, could have an impact on SCN populations two years from now when those fields go back to soybeans. Mike, that's exactly right. And it seems like these days all I have to deliver is bad news, but but not really. It's news uh, we kind of need to know about and deal with. Um, This observation that scientists have had for years and years was that it seemed like soybean cyst nematode reproduced better in dry soils. In other words, numbers increased quicker. And just a few years ago, we did an extensive uh, survey or study of 15 years of data over 25,000 research plots, and that trend uh, appeared. Um, In Iowa, over 125 different experiments over 15 years, we looked at the data, and sure enough, a consistent statistically significant trend was SCN numbers increased more in dry soils and in hot soils. And so taking that bit of knowledge and then pairing it up with our weather conditions we've endured in Iowa and perhaps other places, um, we're a little concerned that SCN numbers might be really high uh, this fall. And as you pointed out, you're in the corn bean rotation. That means there'll be really high numbers waiting for the next soybean crop. So what should producers be doing now to take steps to try to fight that? Well, the SCN Coalition, which is this national education program to help farmers with SCN that you've been a big part of, really talks about four pillars of management. And the first one is sampling, to know your numbers. And and that's the one that needs to be done this fall. And I want to point out, it's not just for fields that are coming off of soybeans but also fields that are coming off of corn that will be slated for soybeans next year. Now, of course, cornfields in 2020 wouldn't have experienced this really high SCN reproduction that we're talking about with dry soils because corn is not a host. But still, farmers need to be aware of and ready to deal with SCN for next season for the soybean crops. And so... Really, fall is a wonderful time to have soil samples pulled, whether the farmers do it themselves or they hire it out to uh, folks that work for elevators and and co-ops. No need to try and juggle it while you're doing harvest, but once the crops are off the field, um, that's a great time to be able to zigzag through the field, pull soil cores, and get a handle on what the numbers are for next year's soybean crop. And if farmers are really interested, sample those fields that were in soybeans in 2020 and see how high the numbers ended up being. 
So important. We talk about this a lot, Greg. Important to have an SCN management plan. It, you mean you plan for you know try to manage weeds and uh, you know other challenges out there. Uh, it seems like kind of been slow to get folks on a, a SCN management plan, but hopefully they're starting to see uh, how important this is and how much they're losing possibly to SCN and take the steps they can to to uh, minimize that. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Mike. And and I, I think we probably had a management plan for 25 years, but it, it was a one one point plan. It was just grow resistant beans, and that served us well for a couple decades. But our problem was that all those resistant beans had the same set of resistance genes, and growing the same set of resistance genes for two decades is like using the same herbicide for two decades. And so now we're living a reality where the resistance doesn't work as well. Numbers are creeping up, and we need to develop a, a much more active management approach, and, and that involves sampling and then getting into a rotation with good resistant soybeans, non-host crops like corn or, or alfalfa or, or sunflower or small grains, and then there's seed treatments out there. And so it, it involves a little bit more effort these days to manage soybean cyst nematode um, well, um, but your point is well taken. There are farmers that are losing money. They're leaving bushels in the field uh, due to FCN, and, and there's no reason it has to be that way. Where are we in developing new FCN-resistant varieties? Well, there's a couple, three things on the horizon that are good. Um, almost all resistant varieties used to be with PI88788 genes, and most people just know it's the, the resistance with all the eights in it. And that's still true. Probably 95% of varieties farmers can grow have that. But there's a second type of resistance available, and it's called Peking resistance, just like the city in China, Peking. Um, and about 5% of the hundreds of varieties that farmers have uh, to their uh, availability have that peaking resistance. So there's a point right there. Look for some peaking resistance to rotate with the 88788 resistance. But also we have on the horizon, um, Syngenta has a new soybean variety. Actually, it'll be marketed um, under two different names, a Golden Harvest name and a Northrop King name. But they have a, a third source of resistance called 89772. And that is different than Peking or 88788. Again, it's only two varieties, so it'll be a little hard for everybody to grow that. But, but we're excited to have a third source of resistance available. And then the final thing is BASF just got approval from the EPA to proceed with developing a transgenic SCN-resistant soybean variety. And so that's not available for farmers yet, but it's on the horizon and so there's better days ahead for resistance, but we've got to manage SCN now. So it's, uh, it's available in the future. And the bottom line is resistant soybean varieties, non-host crops, and seed treatments in rotation. As always, Greg, thanks for the update. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Enjoy talking to you, Mike. Take care. Greg Tilka, Iowa State nematologist to the latest on the battle with soybean cyst nematode. That wraps it up for today. Thank you so much for joining us tomorrow. We'll talk markets. We'll get a CFAP update, harvest update, and lots more. Hope you'll be with us right here on AOA. Have a safe day, everyone.
Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines.